Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the AMPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Katie McGraw, a physical therapist, and I serve on the podcast team of the DDSIG. I'm excited to be here with Jason Longhurst, assistant professor at St. Louis University, who also works in research in neurodegenerative diseases. We will be discussing his poster that he presented at CSM 2022, Differences in Spatiotemporal Gait Characteristics Between Freezing of Gait Subtypes in Parkinson's Disease. So welcome, Jason. Before we get started, please tell us a little bit about your background and what you do. I'm Jason. I am an assistant professor, as Katie said, and thanks for the introduction, Katie. Um, I'm excited to talk today about a poster that me and my, my co-authors presented at CSM this year. A um, little background on me. I, I'm at St. Louis University, and I did my PhD at UNLV. I'm interested in the interaction between motor control and cognition specifically, and how that generates more automatic movement control. Um, and so freezing of gait is a pet topic of mine because of how it integrates both this cognitive aspect of motor control with the actual motor execution of motor control and how it inter- interrupts this automatic processing. So I, I love this topic. I'm excited to talk a little bit more about it today. So why don't you start uh, by just giving us an overview of the research in your poster? Yeah. So it, this poster, um, we utilize data from a, a, a larger scale kind of longitudinal study. And within the study, we had a cohort of 40 individuals with Parkinson's disease. And among these 40 individuals with Parkinson's disease, 20 of them had freeze of gait. And so the main question we wanted to, to look at was to determine if there were differences in their particular gait characteristics um, between those who freeze and those who don't and between those with initiation type freezing and those who freeze but aren't initiation type freezers. And so we, we kind of divided up our subgroups into those categories. And then we went back into, into the gate data that we had collected from a temporal spatial gate mat, think gate right or xenomat if you're familiar with those. And we looked down at some of the nitty gritty gate characteristics. And one of the key things that we thought was really important and really unique about our analysis, besides that we got down to these kind of subgroup levels, was that we wanted to exclude any freezing episodes from with it from these gate characteristics to be able to compare people when they were not frozen. Because obviously freezers are going to be different than non-freezers if we capture them freezing. Mm-hmm. And so this was really important to us that we captured this as non-frozen gate to look at kind of what are those baseline characteristics that's different about the pathophysiology potentially of somebody who freezes and contributes to their changes in their gait outside of freezing. And so interestingly, as we compared our groups, we found pretty consistently that our freezers had kind of smaller gait characteristics. Their spatial parameters were much smaller, shorter step lengths. Their cadence was higher. Um, their velocity was slower. These things tend to kind of go together. It kind of makes sense. Um, we didn't find as much changes in their temporal parameters. The cadence is temporal. It also includes some of these spatial characteristics. And so as we looked then at our subgroup analysis, so we looked between initiation 
free, triggered tr freezers and freezers who were not initiation triggered. We particularly, we found just about everything we looked at from a gate parameter standpoint was different between these groups and, and very strongly so. Um, most interestingly was how different their, their measures of variability were. So the variability of their step length um, was dramatically different between these groups. The variability between their step time was dramatic. The other thing we looked at was we looked at the difference between their these parameters when they were in their on medication state and their off state. Can I stop you for a second though, Jason? Absolutely. Okay. Um, because this is really helpful. And I feel like I'm kind of picturing how you started to divide the, the yeah. data itself. And so I just want to make sure that I'm understanding what you're saying. So initially when you looked at like freezers versus individuals who weren't freezing at all, mm -hmm. right. So characterized by those kind of two main subgroups, yeah. there were certainly differences you're saying between when they weren't freezing, just that baseline alone was different. Yeah. Okay. And then for the freezing group where you looked at the kind of initiation freezers versus the non-initiation freezers, you were saying you still had big differences even within that data between both groups when you were looking at their, at their walking. And was that walking also kind of non-freezing episode data? Yeah, it was. Uh, these were all straight line gate and we excluded passes that had a freezing episode um, entirely from the analysis. And how are you guys defining freezing? And I, and I guess I ask because clinically, um, you know, patients come in and they think, well, I only freeze when I get stuck for 30 seconds. Otherwise I don't freeze, but you know, certainly there's a kind of a spectrum of what is freezing. And so how did you guys cut that off? Unfortunately, it was observational, which means that we're relying on, on expert opinion. Now this is the gold standard because there is no consistent standardized way to do this. Um, and so our way of trying to standardize and, and ensure validity of this a little bit more is that it, it required confirmation of three experienced raters, essentially, um, that we recorded every single pass and every single raider watched every single video to confirm that we really didn't have freezing episodes. Within this, this particular data, it was a little bit easier because we actually had the temporospatial gate data and that gave us really good insight, even without the video that we could pretty well see if there were significant changes in their gate pattern um, throughout that gate cycle, just looking at that data um, pretty quickly as well. So a couple ways of verifying that we really weren't capturing freezing episodes within what we were looking at. And then I think you guys were talking about a really interesting timed up and go that you were using to to essentially observe people walking to see if you could um, find or elicit freezing. So can you just tell us a little bit about what you guys were using? Yeah, yeah. So this is a, a standardized metric it, that to assess observationally freezing of gate. Depending on who you look at and read, it's either called the freezing of gate score or it's called the freezing of gate assessment. Um, but it was first proposed by Ziegler um, in 2010. I generally refer to it as it's like a tug on steroids um, it is kind of, I, I had a colleague who called it the freezer's worst nightmare. It, the, the idea is that you're trying to, to do all the kind of standardized triggering things of freezing in within one episode so that you can elicit and then quantify the severity of their freezing. 
And so it's actually a qualitative scored measure that you score somebody based on how, basically how much freezing you observe um, during different paths. So they stand from a chair, they walk a meter forward, they, within a 16 inch square, they are, they turn around in a 360, then they turn a 360 the other direction. They walk forward two meters, open a door, pass through the doorway, turn around and walk back to their chair and sit down. And that's the first trial. In the second trial, you then have them carry a tray with a full glass of water on it um, and do the same thing. And then the third time you do the same thing, carrying the tray with the full glass of water, and then you have them subtract serially by sevens um, while they do that. Um, the idea being that as we layer on this complexity, it's more likely to result in kind of breaking their automatic pattern and we're more likely to elicit more freezing um, and give us a chance to see if there is freezing there. So the idea is to build so much complexity that they can't manage all of it and we see freezing. So you must have had a mop really handy because yes. I can't imagine <laughs> trying to do this in my carpeted clinic. The other thing that comes to mind in terms of the characteristics of the individuals in your study you know, I tend to see a lot of patients who come in for freezing who are already using either a cane or um, some kind of bilateral device. So, you know, trying to hold a tray or doing some of these kind of higher level motor tests. Can you give us a little background on assisted devices people were using or kind of other aids? Yeah. So everyone, there were many people in this who were included who used an assisted device in the community. However, for the purpose of the study, we, we made every attempt to do every measure without their device. So none of the included gate passes, for example, have the assisted device included. Um, all of our freezing of gate assessments, because they were very short in kind of duration, they're the total of about three and a half meters, were done without devices. Inclusion of that assisted device data without a enough people with it just makes it really hard to interpret what's actually going on. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And so I totally agree from a clinical standpoint, we see these people all the time using devices. And so to just make things cleaner for us, we, we went without, um, but it's a really good question. Well, you can come back and let us know when that research is done. We'll be happy to host you again. Sounds good. Um, (laughs) But for now let's get into your results. So what additional findings did you have? And kind of where does the work go from here? So I think as I look at kind of if I I try and boil this down to what I think are kind of the biggest takeaways, the thing that I see is is the difference between our our individuals with initiation triggered freezing between their on medication state and their off medication state um, is where I think things get really interesting. And what we see for these individuals is in their on medication state, their variability so for example, how variable their step length was is dramatically higher while they're on medication. Now, this is a little bit different than what we would expect. And it speaks to potentially some of where this problem lies mm-hmm. for these individuals. Variability mm-hmm. is not something we desire, <laughs> Usually mm-hmm. for, especially for individuals who freeze. Too much variability gets us beyond kind of our motor program And all of a sudden we have this conflict between motor program and motor execution, and we have the potential to freeze. Um, The reason that being on medication may actually increase this is it allows for more of that motor, essentially motor movement to come through. And so they're getting more dopamine into their system. It allows for more motor execution, but 
it may be less controlled now at this point. And so from a clinical standpoint, if I'm going to, if I'm thinking about how does this matter, if I see somebody who has initiation triggered freezing, one of my key aspects of my intervention needs to be to control this variability, right? And to reduce that variability as much as it possibly can be. Some of the simplest ways of doing this are, are things that we often call like premotor planning or priming or, or whatever we want to call that term, but essentially creating a time and space where they can practice and develop a very consistent motor program that allows them then to reduce variability. This can be as simple as saying, every time I say it, I'm going to start with my right foot, right? It, that idea of having such a consistent motor program that I do it over and over again, and I allow myself to reduce variability. Um, and this may be a scenario where cueing may not be as beneficial, right? Where, where our cueing for individuals who are freezing on initiation may not have quite the same impact that we would see in, in other individuals who freeze. So when you say cueing, um, what, are, what kind of cueing are you referring to? I'm usually thinking about like visual and auditory cueing. In this example, right, I use step length as, as an example here, and it may still be beneficial, but its impact won't probably be as big as it would be in other individuals who freak. So I, I think about that if you use a metronome, for example, as auditory cueing, it, it, it's really good at creating consistency in something that's already consistent. In individuals who freeze on initiation, they're doing a discrete motor program and having that auditory cueing during that period of, of kind of their motor program isn't likely to help them nearly as much. Um, though we do see this aspect transition into their gait um, later. And so potentially maybe later in gait, more beneficial, but they need something early on to reduce that variability. So kind of self-cueing, like they're in control of it. Yes. Okay. So that particular challenge with freezing initiation, you're finding that the self-cue potentially is more beneficial than kind of having this external cue, but then at later phases or challenges with freezing, right? Different cueing strategies may be effective. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think our, our, our thing as therapists that we understand is cueing is, is usually our golden ticket in freezing. And, and I, you know, I'll, I'll speak to a lot of the research that's, that's gone on. We tend to, to cue a lot and we don't do a good job of kind of pulling back our cues um, necessarily as much. And the research is really powerful in that need that we have to be able to be selective in cueing. And so utilizing either self-cueing or uh, alternative strategies that, that allow for, for problem solving and, and developing our, like that individual's own strategy are really mm -hmm. powerful. I mean, we, we see this in the literature with, with a lot of the kind of freezing predictive models and technology-based cueing methods that they're trying to go to predictive algorithms to say, I'm only going to cue when there's a freezing episode that's going to happen so that we're not getting this kind of constant, um, uh, again, to use metronome as an example, we're not mm -hmm. getting that constant rhythm just there all the time. It's mm -hmm. like when we put a shirt on in the morning, we put it on, we feel it for about three seconds and then we turn it mm -hmm. off. And mm -hmm. they do the same thing to those external cues if we allow them to just be there all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I do, I think independence with kind of use of these strategies is the ultimate goal, right? And kind of like trying to work towards that. And I know kind of early on in kind of sharing a little bit about your your research interests, right? So you have an interest in kind of the overlay of um, cognitive control or, and I would imagine also kind of the deficit, the related deficits that are associated with Parkinson's disease and how that influences 
gait in particular, the freezing of gait. And a lot of us who treat in the clinic, you know, that's one of the largest barriers to becoming independent or really just being successful, even if even cued, even, you know, with all the support, trying to incorporate it into their walking, you know, it just that multitasking component, right? That kind of attentional component. And I think what this is offering is um, in some ways, some assurance that, you know, what we're observing in terms of the challenges, um, it's, it's not just like, it's not just because of how we're doing it, right? Like maybe as a therapist, we're not approaching the auditory cueing, right? Or there's something about how we're turning it on is, you know, so if someone else came in with, um, might be able to do a little bit different, like there really is an interaction between kind of what we're driving in terms of the cueing and the person's, um, kind of cognitive abilities. Um, you can't help, but kind of see these interactions, but as a therapist right now, we just don't know what to do about it. We're kind of lost a little bit. And there are some people we just, we just can't help. Yeah. It it does feel like we just run up against barriers. And and so this, this does, it transitions really nicely into my other related areas of interest. Um, and, And this work just, I say, kind of helps to inform that, Hey, there's, there's likelihood that there's very different kind of pathophysiology between individuals who freeze. Like something is different about these people. Um, not everyone who freezes kind of necessarily has the same exact disease process going on. And so I would say my my future work related to this kind of goes in two directions. It's we want to understand the differences in the neurophysiology of these groups, like what is actually stemming this, these differences. And hopefully that gives us really good insight into interventions that are very neuroplasticity driven for these individuals. Mm -hmm. So that we're very oriented to, again, the neurophysiology of what's going on. Um, The other aspect is more in line with what you were talking about um, and and looking at very much the the cognitive control aspect that is is maybe slightly neglected here because it is a motor disease and it's a distinctly motor impairment, Um, but it has dramatic cognitive contributions to that motor impairment, Mm -hmm. Um, especially, especially in intentional control and inhibition um, are kind of like, we, we know that those are big aspects. And and going forward, you know, as I look at this from a, from a neurophysiology standpoint, we want to see, okay, where, where do those neurophysiologic contributions from a cognitive impairment or from a, from even just minor deficits in their kind of neuropsych, neuropsychiatric performance start to contribute to the severity or the, the type or some aspect of freezing, uh, especially in its development. Um, it, you know, I, I think that, again, I mentioned this earlier, there's a lot of work going into predicting freezing right now, both from a within individuals who freeze, knowing when those episodes are going to happen and within individuals who don't have freezing, like how do we know who and when they will develop this, this disorder? Um, and that, that is, that is a big golden ticket for all of this. For anyone who treats this, you know, how important, pairing on function and quality of life this particular syndrome is and so finding those pieces that allow us to predict any aspect of it are tremendously beneficial Um, again the more predictable it is the more we can intervene for it um, both ahead of time and concurrently if we know it's going to happen we can do something about it Um, a lot of our intervention strategies are behavioral and so the more we know when to intervene when to bring them forward, the better we are with them. So 
Well, like I said, we're, we're really looking forward to the next time you're on our podcast and you can update us on kind of all the developments that you're talking about. Yeah. We'll give it a few years. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> <laughs> so on our podcast, we always like to ask people what you do um, for fun when you're not working towards all these kind of amazing goals. Yeah. It, it, I, as I was thinking about this, this question, um, I, I laughed because what do I do for fun? Well, I love, I love what I do. I love my research and, and I could spend, hear that a lot. <laughs> yeah. I could spend a lot of time there. Um, you know, for, for years as a clinician research was my hobby. Um, I, I kind of jokingly said, um, as I would spend, you know, 40 hours a week doing research on top of everything else. Um, I also love getting outdoors. I, I, you know, I have three young kids and, and I like to brag that they are the best hiking young kids that, you know, everyone is amazed on the trail when you're three miles out and you got a four-year-old who's just trucking along. And um, it, 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 I love getting outdoors, outdoors with them and, and just about anything that way um, is it, fun, whether it be hiking or skiing or, or anything else we can, we can do outside. So love doing that um, and, and have fun with them. So. Well, nice work on getting them started young because I feel like that's part of the success is if they just they don't know that this isn't normal, then they just this is what their MO is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again for your work. Um, I know that you know you had a team behind you, so yes. I just want to give you an opportunity to give everyone um, a shout out that was also involved. Yeah. So for, for this particular project, I, I had a couple of great co-authors. Um, who who contributed in different ways. A big shout out to Cameron Jacobson, um, who is now a um, in his neuro residency at Boston University. Um, at the time of this project, he was finishing his DPT at UNLV, um, and he he spent lots of hours prepping this data and, and assisting in in writing and and getting. Um, that in, kind of condensing the interpretation. He did great work. Um, also, Michael Gewurzman, who's at the Cleveland Clinic, um, um, who really, really helped in, in the interpretation and kind of putting the, putting the kind of finishing touches and, and making this meaningful. Um, so really grateful for, for their contributions um, and their great work on this one. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guest today, Jason Longhurst. 4D is produced by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. Our podcast team includes Carm Paget, Chris Burke, Sarah Zoller, Rebecca Martin, Adriana Carey, Casey Burris, and I'm Katie McGraw. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. And please share this episode with a friend or colleague today. Special thanks to Jimmy McKay of the TT Pinecast for providing music. Thanks for listening. Of course, now I can't figure out. This is going to be a blooper. Is me trying to figure out how to get my face <laughs> off of here. <laughs> how would you like me to introduce you? Oh, I, I'm pretty casual. Like you can. You, <laughs> well, you, like your title. Like, are you a researcher? Sarah. Do you love how I'm talking to you? It's like you're here with me. So great. Presented at CSM 2022. All right, and I am out of here.